Welcome to the Detroit Evening Reports Weekends, where, unlike during the week, where DER focuses on the news of the day and news you can use, we focus on the people and places that make Detroit truly special. And this week, joining us is Tia Graham. Hey, Tia. Hi, Sasha. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and, of course, uh, listeners will know you as one of our DER Weekday hosts. Um, but that's not all you're up to. What else are you up to when you're not focused on the Detroit Evening Report? When I am not focused on Detroit Evening Report, I am working on Culture Shift, of course. And a lot of the times I'm finding ways to uh, uh, kind of uh, share the knowledge and wealth of stories that we have from Culture Shift to DER because they often crossover and overlap. So that's something I've been trying to do, honestly, uh, just taking a look at what we have on Culture Shift and seeing how we can highlight it on DER Weekends, which is what we're here doing today. It is what we're doing today. So tell us what we're up to today. So today, so Hispanic Heritage Month is from September 15th to October 15th, every single year. And this year I decided with Culture Shift to kind of break it down uh for one episode, just an entire two-hour episode of just talking about Hispanic Heritage Month, and I decided to pull in some familiar voices and familiar people. Carmen Garcia, who works here at WDET, Ralph Valdez, who also works at WDET, and then as well, Serena Maria Daniels, who is also a, a, a local journal or local media personality here. And we all talked about just being uh, uh, Hispanic Americans here in the city of Detroit and how they got here and, and, and the importance of this community, especially the one in southwest Detroit and uh, everything it has to offer and, and, and adding to the cultural diversity uh, of the city of Detroit, which a lot of us often um, just kind of overlook or not just or just don't think about. Yeah. When we talk about Detroit for so long, it's been a very monochromatic discussion, yeah. very black and white. Yes. And we have such uh, an old and historic and vibrant Latino community. We also have other communities that, you know, we often don't talk about. So it's nice to create that space to clarify, you know, the, the history of who we really are. Exactly. That is exactly why I wanted to tell this story and, and to tell these stories and hear these personal um, 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 stories. There were just so many things I learned and I just felt like there is so much more we have to tell. So set up how we're going to get into this. Yeah. So the first conversation, like I said, we did three conversations. So the first one was with Ralph Valdez. And Ralph talked about growing up in the city of Detroit. His huge family is 16 of them siblings. So he's going to talk about his huge family growing up in the city of Detroit and the pride of being Mexican-American. Oh, my. <laughs> you had me at 16. OK, let's get into this. Ralph Valdez. I am first-generation Mexican-American. My parents were both born in Mexico. My mother came over at a very young age at about, I think she was four or five years old. And she eventually ended up with her parents, my grandparents, on a farm near Emily City. And they were uh, homesteaders for a while, but eventually got their own farm. And it was a dairy farm that we used to go to in the summer. So we had the best of both worlds where we were able to be city kids in the you know part of the year and then in the summer go to the grandparents' farm and be kind of like country kids. But um, that's where my mother met my father who came over as a ranchero or a ranch hand and he had experience and a lot of the you know different ethnic communities kind of stuck together. So he ended up working on my grandparents' farm 
And that's where he met my mother. You know, I love that. I also got the best of both worlds growing up, having Southern country grandparents listening to a little bit of the background. Your parents didn't originally end up in Detroit. So how did they get here? My parents had an interesting story because they ended up coming over from, um, you know, different parts of Mexico. But they had to elope because my father was a ranch hand and he was considered not worthy of my mother's uh, hand in marriage. And they fell in love and they ended up having to elope. And it wasn't until my eldest sister, their first child, my sister Isabel, when she was born, that their hearts softened, my grandparents' hearts, and they accepted their marriage, even though they kind of had to escape from the farm, so to speak. And you know, my mother tells, used to tell stories about jumping out a window into the snow and losing her shoe and having a car waiting to take her to Detroit. Um, but uh, so, yeah, they, there was a lot of interesting stories in my, in my family and, and in our heritage. And my grandparents themselves ended up in Michigan because they were originally from Michoacan, which to the, a lot of the Mexican people pronounce Michigan, like Michigan and Michoacan. So it has the same hard CH sound. So they heard um, the story was that my grandfather was was kind of ill. He had a fever and was a little delirious. And he heard someone speaking in Spanish saying that there was a train going back to Michoacan. And he was so tired of being taken advantage of the of the uh, farm people in Texas that, you know, they were working him to death and not paying him well. So he heard this uh, Spanish-speaking person saying there was a train going to Michoacan, which would have been kind of strange anyway, but he, he believed it and he got on the train and it was actually going to Michigan, Michigan. And uh, so th- there's actually a documentary that my cousins made about the f- uh, story of how my parents, I mean, my grandparents, how they came from Michoacan to Michigan. They worked in the sugar beet fields up in the thumb and that's where my mother grew up and uh, she had a large family too. I had lots of aunts and uncles. And so when we had that time on the farm, it was always like big gatherings with cousins and, you know, big uh, picnics and things. So it was, like I said before, and like you were saying, the best of both worlds. So you talked about a little bit before that you have a large, large family. What was it like with such a large family in Detroit during the 1960s, 70s and onward? Well, I am one of 16 children that my mother and father had, and I call myself number 15 of 16. I'm the youngest of the boys. I have a sister younger than me that's uh, the youngest of all. And as I get older, we are you know, all progressing, so we've lost a few of the older ones. But it was really wonderful growing up in Detroit. We grew up, um, you know, we didn't know we were poor or consider ourselves poor, but everyone around us was sort of in the same boat. So what did we know? But um, we grew up over by uh, 18th Street was where I grew up, and it was called Myrtle at the time, but it's now called Martin Luther King Boulevard. And our parish was St. Leo's, which became famous for being the basic home of Bishop Gumbledon, who did a lot of activist work. And the Wonder Bread factory was right down the street from us. So we would smell that as we were going to church or going into different parks in the neighborhood. And that became the um, Motor City Casino. So, yeah, growing up there, ethnicity and culture wasn't as much celebrated, although we did in our own family, but it was the times I grew up in the, through the 60s and early 70s where a lot of people were just assimilating, you know, their cultures were sort of being absorbed and you were kind of encouraged to just kind of 
be American and be like, you know, everybody else. And we enjoyed where we grew up because we did have a lot of different ethnicities and, you know, black and white and Puerto Rican, everybody just a freaking. No, I'm just kidding. It was, it was a, a real ethnic mix. And it was um, nice to be able to, you know, go to different people's houses and have different types of food and smells and dance and music and such. But um, the family that lived directly next door to us, they were German-American, and they had almost as big of a family as we did. So they had like a corresponding kid for every age of someone in our family. So we each had our own, you know, playmate of, of a different culture. But like I said, it was all like we were just all neighborhood kids. We talked earlier, of course, about conforming and what it was like growing up for you. Um, how do you feel about it today, expressing yourself in your Mexican culture? Well, I think as I get older, the more I have an interest in the roots of my culture. And when I was younger, we were all just into whatever was popular at the time in terms of music. And, um, you know, I did feel like my tastes were more underground maybe than the, the average kid on the block. But um but it was, uh, you know, things like punk rock that inspired me back then. And before that, it was prog rock and, you know, different types of rock music of, of course, just, you know, a little bit of everything and rockabilly and garage rock and everything. But but now that I'm getting older, I feel like my interest in my roots has, has increased. And I feel like that about a lot of things as I get older. I didn't pay that much attention in school to history, and now I love history. And growing up, I just took for granted the the music and the culture of the Mexican-American heritage that I had. But um, now I, I seek it out more, and I enjoy it. And I can almost be moved to tears when I hear a mariachi band because it's just, it just comes from the soul, and it feels so powerful. As you said... Ralph Valdez works here at WDET, and certainly I did not know all of those things about him. I did hear that story. He told me that story once about Michoacan, um, and it's hilarious to me, but I didn't even know that there were 16 kids. It's amazing. Huge family. He actually brought in a photo of his family right when we were doing the conversation. And just, I mean, even with the photo, was tons of them in his picture, and he wasn't included yet because he hadn't been born yet. (laughs) So you saw just a bunch of people. I'm like, where are you, Ralph? And he's like, I'm not there yet. (laughs) (laughs) So just seeing that large family, especially a large Latino family in the city of Detroit, just I just wanted to know more about his experience because it's very unique to hear that type of experience growing up. I mean, MLK in 18 was wasn't MLK then, but MLK in 18th uh, with such a large family, I could only imagine. I'm imagining getting off of a train in a place you know. didn't intend to be. Wrong way. You went the wrong way. It was the wrong way. Wrong but way. you made home Michigan. And now, you know, generations later, three, four generations later, they've been here and uh, called Detroit and Michigan home for since then. So, yeah. Yeah. And then just the idea of uh, a city family. This is really foreign to me. A city family having a farm. Yeah. Like we have a summertime farm. Yeah. Where we work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Come to the city. And, you know, one of the things that was so um, interesting about that was they lived in Emily. And that's where they were, uh, their, his grandparents were originally beet farmers. So they were work or sugar, sorry, sugar beet farmers. And they were working on the farm and they had land and they were tending to the farmhouse and, and they would come as a family, family reunions. And he said, of course, the family reunions were absolutely huge, absolutely huge. But they would go up to Michigan, they would go to the farm and they would just have a good time in the summertime. And um, so, yeah, he did get the best of both worlds. That's amazing. I didn't even know about Michigan sugar beets. No. Because I'm a real city girl. <laughs> 
I'm really close. We talked about, Ralph and I were talking, but I'm really close to being a strictly city kid. However, I did have Southern grandparents who lived in, in, in the country parts of Michigan. So I did get best of both worlds with that. And it's a stark reality. It is. Okay, so who are we talking to next? So, yes, the next conversation we have is with Carmen Garcia, who has been in the industry for almost 40 years you know, 40 years, almost four decades. Um, And she's done pretty much everything you can think of in this industry. But one of the things that she, you know, really talks about and highlights, especially when we have conversations, is this Latino pride. Just talking about being proud of being a Mexican-American woman. And and that's one of the things that we often talk about, we often get to. So I said, you know what, Carmen, let's have a conversation and and, and learn more about you and your background and your family. And, uh, Carmen, uh, just like Ralph told her story about growing up in this area, the little bit about how her family got here. And just like Ralph, lots of traveling, lots of on the road again type of situations. But once they finally rooted themselves here in, this, in, in Michigan, they, they stayed. Another interesting story. Another interesting one. I bet. OK, Carmen Garcia. <laughs> The, the, the revolution, the war in Mexico that lasted, I'm not sure how many years, but they wanted to get their children to safety. So my mom's family came through El Paso, Texas, and then to Homestead, Pennsylvania, where my oldest uncle worked as a coal miner. And my dad's family came through the South, Texas and Louisiana, and uh, would have stayed there except for the $5 wages at Ford Motor Company. And my grandfather came to work at Ford first, and my dad missed him and said, you know what, I'm going to ditch college <laughs> and go do that. They, they, had a, they had a falling out over that. They got it back together, though. But the $5 work they brought my grandfather and my father here, and that's how my, my dad met my mom. They participated in a lot of dances and, and community activities of the um, Sociedad Patriotico de Mexico, the Patriotic Society of Mexico, that was um, very vibrant and brought lots of people together. I just find this so interesting because I knew about the African-American migration, of course, from the South, but I never knew that there was a great migration from Latin America, from Mexico, and from South America as well. It's very interesting. It, it is fascinating. And, and what is, what's been a source of pride for my parents and my family has been the connections to Mexico. We have Diego Rivera's murals here at the, at the DIA took us to see those as you know from childhood until we were going on our own and really pointing with pride that public art now public art has a mixed history right because even one of Diego Rivera's murals was was um, plastered over in New York City so it always is risk taking it's always making statements and the the mural movement in Mexico had three muralists Rivera was the only one to come to Detroit and paint but what's so interesting is to that many years later see a mural movement happening in Detroit today. I drive down Woodward a lot to and from work, you know, home and work, and I'm seeing more murals on buildings. And I just think the kernel of that is right there in the um, Art Institute. Like you were saying, the history, the rich history of the Latinx community here in the city of Detroit, specifically, of course, the Mexican-American community here. And I think about the marker that's going to go up tomorrow. And I thought to myself, this is long overdue. This This is long overdue. So what are your thoughts, not even just thoughts, but feelings about the Latinx contributions to the city of Detroit in the state of Michigan as a whole and just being um, honored for it? It's pretty exciting. And it's and it's. As you said, it's overdue, but it's still humbling because when I think about the people whose shoulders I stand on, 
there are many. You know, this will surprise you, Tia, but when when I was growing up, there weren't any black people on television or 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 most you know big commercial stations. There weren't any Latinos at all. So there had to be, you know, power doesn't, power isn't given, it's taken, right? So there were people who challenged and went to stations and said, we don't see anybody like ourselves on your air. And we think you're not serving the community, especially public television and radio, um, aren't serving the public adequately. And so I'm standing on the shoulders of people who led that movement and got a show on WDET years and years ago and got a show on Detroit Public Television years and years ago. Otherwise, who knows? Might have taken much, much longer. What has it been like for you, especially um, expressing yourself and expressing your culture, your Mexican culture? What has it been like from the past versus 2023? Um, One of the things that Ralph said was it wasn't as outwardly acceptable. Yeah. Then versus now when, you know, when he was growing up versus now. So what were your experiences like? So I grew up in Allen Park and uh, we were the darkest skinned people in the community. And so we we learned my parents were very observant and very smart people. And they said, you know what, we're going to put the all the all the chips in the basket of learning English correctly. So while I'm not totally bilingual, I'm not fluent in Spanish unless I'm in in Mexico or Spain for a little while. But the difference now is I feel like if I had grown up rolling my R's and saying my name, Carmen Garcia, I could say that on the air today where I couldn't when I came into media almost four decades ago. I, I love that comparison because that's one thing that Ralph and I were talking about is just the idea that you can even hear it now mm-hmm. or even see it now with pride and and, 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 pa- and compassion and passion. It's something that really, he says, sets his soul on fire. What do you see for the future of, you know, the young people in your community? Wow. So we happen to be on a campus that has a Latino Latina studies program. And the fact that it has over 200 students in it right now is exciting to me. It means that, you know, we're 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 making our way um, using the, the system as it is, but it's allowing for that diversity to really be expressed and really be celebrated. So I, I feel like it's it, the sky's the limit. Garcia talking yeah. to Tia Graham. I want to make a note. Uh, she made a reference to uh, the campus being on a campus, and WDET's studios are located on Wayne State University's campus, so that's what she's referring to. I wanted to ask you about something else she mentioned, which was a marker. Yeah. yeah. The historic marker. Yeah, so that is, uh, it was a historic marker that went up September 29th, I believe that was a Friday, and it was a celebration of Tijano music. So, it was just the, so number one, most people didn't even know that that was something that was, Michigan was known for, Detroit was known for, but Tijano music, just like a lot of music that comes from migration, it was kind of built out of migration. So it was just people coming from different spaces and places in Latin America, South America, coming to Michigan, coming to the States and creating a sound. And Tijano music was that sound that they created and it helped to diversify uh, the city of Detroit. So when we think about the diversity of Detroit, we always have to think about Tijano music and that's why that marker exists now. And the cool thing about that marker too, I was looking at some of the the words and listening and looking and reading over it. And WDT was there present right there as one of the radio stations that were one of the first to showcase and highlight Tejano music in in the state. So I thought that was just amazing that WDT is continuing the work that we do is putting people out there who deserve to be uh, represented. 
It's really true that who we are as a station really has come out of this really unique mix of the ethnicities in the city and also the city's kind of um, social and political history that WDET was founded by the UAW, that, you know, it is licensed through Wayne State University, that, you know, so we have this really unique history um, even amongst public radio stations. Yes, we do. It also really shows how uh, significant the history of the auto industry here was to, you know, when we talk about the great migration, it's so much a part of the African-American story, this movement from the South, but it was a multicultural and in some ways international movement. That was one of the things that really, really threw me. I I remember I just stopped for a second because I just thought I heard about the Great Migration, that my family's a part of it. They came from Arkansas, Alabama to come work at Ford. So, you know, it's definitely in our blood and our genes. We know about it like every single this is what we know. But to not understand and know the significance of the Latino movement as well within that greater movement I honestly kind of felt really like, you know, like I just didn't feel great about not knowing that history and that knowledge. Um, um, so just learning that, going to do my own research and just figuring out that this, this, these are American history stories. They're not just this story or that story. They're American history stories. So that's how we have to start looking at these things. Absolutely true. And I got to shout out my Louisiana roots. <laughs> Louisiana. See? Both sides. Great migration. <laughs> See, we all have that connection. And I think it's so important that we make sure that we're connecting every person to that great migration because I had no idea. I think that is very true. Okay. Who are we talking to next? So our last and final conversation with, with is with uh, Serena Maria Daniel. She is a culture writer, a food writer for Eater Detroit. And she recently, uh, we recently sat down and we talked just about um, Hispanic Heritage Month itself, the lack of representation and why she does what she do, why she writes, why she writes about food in the way she does, or why she writes about certain cultures in the way she does, representation. And she really gets into this dialogue back and forth where she's talking about um, this thing that happened to her and the reason why she decided to right for representation and it was just the lack of 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 the language barriers and how that that hurts access to news so that really hit hit me hard Mm. serena maria daniels i think we have a really strong community in in detroit you know it's really concentrated and it's really diverse there are people from you know, from Guatemala, like my neighbors, or Puerto Rico, my other neighbors. Um, you know, I'm Mexican-American myself. There's a lot of folks like myself who have grown up, whose families are from here, have been here for generations, may or may not speak Spanish, depending on, you know, how long a household has been here. Um, and we have a lot of recent arrivals as well. Um, I think the community is always changing. It's always evolving. And I think it's one of the most, you know, stable neighborhoods really in, in the city of Detroit, I would say. And, and that's, you know, that, that has to do with that constant migration and, and that, that changing and, you know, new communities coming in and, and investing in the neighborhood. And for you being a Mexican-American writer, a food writer, culture writer, how do you use writing to highlight representation? Years ago, when I was a freelance reporter, um, I was a contributor to Reuters um, at the time. And so 
you know, I was covering the bankruptcy. I was covering um, water shutoffs, uh, the foreclosure crisis, um, but then also the Flint water crisis. And one of the big things that stood out to me at the time, this had to be around 2015 or 16, um, was the fact that people in Flint were going around the predominantly Spanish-speaking community knocking on people's doors, letting them know that the water wasn't safe um, because they had, there was no other outlet to report this essential information in Spanish. Um, and so really, you know, people having to take into their own hands to try to, fi- you know, fill that information gap, I just, I just found it to be, you know, truly reprehensible and, you know, it's tragic, honestly, because, you know, the thought of you have to speak English in order to protect your family and be safe and healthy, which is, it was outrageous to me. Everybody should have access to essential information and everybody should feel seen when they pick up the newspaper or click on the website you know, to have some, not just like the beauty of our culture, but also just re- relaying critical information. I don't, I don't think there should be <laughs> any sort of barrier to, to accessing information that will protect your family. Um, and so that, that has stayed with me. We also saw this through the pandemic where a lot of misinformation was going out in all kinds of different languages. You know, English included, but to know that there's this global crisis and that it seems like only people with a certain kind of education or background should have access to that information is just, you know, it's not the way that our democracy should function. Uh, This being true almost throughout most communities of colors, this feeling of inadequacy for whatever it may be. Maybe I'm not this enough or maybe I'm not that enough or whatever it may be. You may not feel adequate in your own culture, in your own community. So how has your writing and life lessons helped with those feelings? I think for me, so one thing I want to point out. So years ago, I was still pretty new living in Detroit and and somebody, um, you know, I introduced myself to somebody, um, you know, they asked what what my background was, which is typical, right? You know, where are you from? Where are you really from? That kind of questioning. Um, and, you know, and I shared my background. I'm, I'm Chicana. I'm, you know, Mexican-American. And, um, but you wouldn't know that looking at my last name. And so the individual pointed out to me, you know, you might want to change your last name to your mother's name, which is Diaz. And, you know, at this point, I was well into my 30s. I had lived with the last name Daniels my entire life. Um, I I know I know what it sounds like. I know what people how people interpret it, and I had to make a decision very early on in my career how I would identify myself. And so when that when that occasion happened, and you know it was suggested that you know I change my last name. I mean, first of all, I said you know I thought to myself. People are just going to think I got married. They're not going to think anything different, right? But like, I would have to explain myself why I did that. And I just felt like by changing who I am, it perpetuates that kind of negativity in the community. We don't all look the same. You know, we, we are mixed race or mixed, you know, ethnic backgrounds where, you know, 
we're white looking, we're black, we're indigenous, we're tall, short, we have all kinds of different features. And we all speak different languages. We don't all speak Spanish. You know, people might have varying degrees of, of English literacy, but, but they're bilingual. And so like, you have all of these different, different ways to be Latino. And once I came, once I became at peace with that, it didn't matter what anybody else thought about my identity. It didn't matter if you look at me and say, well, she's a, a whitewash, you know, Latina or, or whatever the, the connotations are. One of the trends that has been going on on social media lately is the no sabo kids, which is like a derogatory kind of, it's a kind of an insult to somebody who didn't grow up speaking Spanish. And so once I kind of let go of that, like, kind of expectation of what I should be, it, just, it, freed, it freed me up and, and allowed me to do that deep reporting without any kind of reservation. That was Serena Maria Daniels. That's a really interesting discussion. I thought the the situation she describes in Flint mm-hmm. of communities not getting information because of language barriers, um, we know that that is still an issue. That's not a problem that we have solved in in the country, in politics, or in journalism yet. Yeah, no, I. Uh, that was one of one of the things. It was we had a long conversation, so it was hard to really cut that one down. This particular one, they were all hard to cut down, but this one was hard to cut down because she hit on so many uh, very important points that things that are happening right now amongst the um, Latino community. But just hearing about the language barrier and the access or lack of access to important information, whether it be something like a a Flint water crisis or whether it is something like paying for a bill or or getting just vital information about taxes, whatever it may be, that moved her to tell stories in the way that she tells stories. I thought uh, one of her last points was so interesting to me, the idea of how you find um, individual space within your culture And it's an interesting time, I think. You know, we have almost had to have a lot more public space, more popular space to be able to have more complicated discussions around identity. Because we know within our communities that we are diverse, but we have this history and practice of wanting to present um, certain cultural faces to the world. And so, you know, now I think we're at a time where we can have some more complicated discussions about identity. We're getting there slowly but surely, especially when Serena was talking about it for, for her and her community. There are there is still lack of representation, especially in terms of Afro Latino or even darker skinned Latinos or even like she was saying, um, non-Spanish speaking Latino. Is just so many different ways to represent um, and to be shunned for it or to be considered less than for it is something that I think, like you were saying, like a lot of us experience in our culture is trying to be individuals within our culture. And so when she brought that up, it honestly kind of felt out of the blue at first. But then I thought, no, we go through that as well in the black community. A lot of people go through it in other communities as well, minority communities. So when do we get to the space and the place where we can start having these conversations open with our aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas? 
Yeah, I appreciate that. People are always pulling on my black card, Tia. You, mine too. <laughs> and, and, and you know, a lot of the times people ask me, like, where are you from? And I'll say, I'm from Detroit. And I'll say, well, for real, like, where are you from? Are you from Southfield, Farmington Hills? And it's just like, no, I'm from the city. It's just that we're not on monoliths. So right. you can't tell just by looking at a person where they're from or what their upbringing's like. So I think just having a little bit more grace with each other. So that way, you know, just not assuming that we all are the same because we're not. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting when we think about representation, um, I think about political representation uh, in the city. And so we do have, you know, Gabriela Santiago Romero, yes, who's uh, representing Southwest Detroit. I have spoken to uh, Latino activists who say, you know, we are not sure we could have citywide representation, that that a Latino candidate could win a citywide election of any sort. And so that, to me, is an interesting discussion to have. You know, how are we folding in all of who we are into our daily functioning and into representation at every level? And I also love that because I just find it interesting when we talk about politics and the political landscape. By 2050, we already know that majority of our population is going to be Spanish speaking in the United States of America. That's not just, you know, Detroit. So how are we going to meet them, meet that point properly without having proper representation within our government, within our city hall, you know, schools, whatever it may be. If we don't have that proper representation by 2050, we're all going to be kind of spinning on our heads trying to figure out ways to communicate effectively with one another. Yeah, it's an interesting question, and it'll be interesting to see how our our sense of self changes over time. One of the other things, I think, that when we talk about the Latino community and we talk about Detroit as a border town, I think the experience of the Latino community and the immigration services uh, is one that goes pretty unexplored locally. I think there are many, many more stories to hear about how the Latino community in Detroit experiences uh, the immigration story, the politics of immigration. Yes. Well, and so um, I do want to note that, as you said, this conversation, these conversations today came from a whole two hour show you did. Yes. So do you want to tell us more about some of the conversations, uh, the other conversations you had so, yeah, the other conversation was it was the three that I put together that we just heard now. And then the first one was with Dr. Jorge Chania. He is a Wayne State professor, um, history professor, uh, uh, specializes in Latino studies. And we just went through a uh, about 15 minutes or so. just a conversation about the the um, um, presence of. Latinos here in Michigan and here in Detroit. And then he also talked about different pockets throughout Michigan that are home to large Latino populations outside of Detroit. So Grand Rapids was one of them that we had. I had no idea. And there are a few other pockets in Michigan that are home to large populations of Latino people. And we had, I had no idea. And it's because of farming and opportunities and whatever it may have been uh, and what, what's happening, how they got here and, and, and how um, um, their history helps build Detroit's history. I just found it fascinating. And, and that whole show was just uh, Latino music and Latino conversations and that's all we did for the most part and um yeah i hope that we can do more i know we're going to do more we don't have a choice we have to do more because that's what representation is yeah 
Well, thank you, Tia, so much for bringing us these conversations, these voices, and these histories from our own Latino community here and helping us understand ourselves collectively so much better. I'm really grateful. Thank you. I'm so happy that we had a chance to put this together. Yeah. Well, thank you, dear listener, for joining us for the Detroit Evening Report Weekends, where we spend some time with the people and places that make Detroit special. As always, if you have people and places, issues, ideas, things you think we ought to know about, drop us a line at Detroit Evening Report at WDET.org. Thank you so much. We'll see you Monday. Bye-bye.